too. What what comes up for you around all of these topics? Uh, one thing, a couple things. So when we get into an argument with someone like you, you know, and you were saying that he was Ken was saying take six seconds to do something to distract your mind. Um, what is it that you know? It could be anything, I guess. What is it that what um, what are we trying to do when we want to engage in an argument or something? Why why do our brains go that way instead of going to the more? You know, we just think about this. Does that make sense? It feels like you're being attacked. I guess is all I'm saying. Is that what's happening? Well, you know, with every situation, it's different. But what you know, think for yourself. You know, when you want to get into an argument, or you feel freaked out, or you want to run, or you want to fight, or your whole system freezes. These are um, response mechanisms that are part of our survival, but just get activated. So, you know, one of the things about somebody who's dealing with a lot of trauma, like the vets, you know, the people who come back from war, is it doesn't take very much at all for them to completely freak out. You know, they hear a loud noise, you know, or, you know, they get they get activated very quickly because their their nervous system is responding as if they're still in the middle of something that's completely life-threatening. And so, you know... You know, the whole work with trauma work is, is to release this stuff from our systems because it's not a psychological issue. It's a it's a physiological and a neurological one, you know. It's not like there's something wrong with you. It's the, mentally. It's just that there are, our systems are wired for that. But why why do we get angry? You know, why do we get so sad? Why do we, you know, why do these things come up? That's a good question. And what do you think, Adriana? I think it, it definitely has to do with feeling feeling attra- attacked or feeling affronted, maybe. I mean, survival, survival of the fittest, I mean, just that's the way people have evolved, with the animals from which we did evolve from. It, if it was really sink or swim, and if something was trying to hurt you, then you had to respond in some way or another. And I don't know, I just I suppose that that could definitely have led to what we now think or how we respond. And I feel like usually it's triggered by emotion um, rather than, I mean, if you if you stay more emotionless or if you're if you're calmer, you usually don't react as much as people who can't control their tempers or have more of an issue with that sort of, with that. I don't know, I'm not entirely sure where I was going with this, but I think a lot of it has to do with emotions. So I don't know that we can um, control what arises, but we can affect the way we relate to it. And so, you know, meditation training is to change things from causing emotional pain and distress to moving into looking at it in another way, looking at it from a perspective of, like, gratitude or opportunity. What's the name of that fellow, Nick, who doesn't have arms and legs? What's his last name? Nick? Nick what? It's a strange name. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. 
I just saw a YouTube clip that somebody had sent. Do you know him? Do you know his story? Mm. Or have you seen any YouTubes of him? He, uh, I might have. I'm not. I think my dad might have shown me, but I'm not sure if it's the same person. Yeah, he was born without arms and legs, and um, you know, I imagine that there were times when he was just get me out of here, you know. But there's a kind of um, I don't know what, a courage, a perseverance, I don't know what, qualities, where he just really wanted to work with what he had. And he's, he's amazing, you know. He goes surfing, he plays golf, he swims. He's got his name arms and legs, you know. He walks up and down stairs. He's married and has a baby. They just, they, 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 they've had a baby. You know, so he talks about, you know, the kind of change of, of from moving from something as being terrible to the positive aspect of, of, of being involved in, in a healthy way. Or, you know, the Tibetan monks that were in uh, gulag for 20 years, you know, torture prison camp. And, you know, they, they used it as an opportunity to strengthen their compassion. So I don't think they have the control to keep pain or fear or anxiety from arising, but they did have the ability to relate to it in a particular way. And then at a certain point, sometimes those things just don't even arise, you know. You know? Not through controlling, but because they're just there's no foundation for them to arise. I thought it was interesting when you said that um, in this 15-minute conversation that you had that all of a sudden things started to really make sense over here. And I thought, um, yeah, I mean, I'm like, and something along the line of present mindfulness, I think, there was something else that came, that came to me. It was like, yeah, I mean, if, if we're just aware of things that come up and can be in that moment, I mean, if you weren't in that moment with, with him, maybe you wouldn't have gotten what you did get. one of the things that is said is, is that one of the um, one of the qualities that is um, helps anger continue is unwise attention. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if somebody insults you and your attention goes to the things that that person said, you're going to get fired up. Right? But if somebody insults you and you pay attention to your feet or you think about how caring he is to his dogs at home, or, you know, you, you shift attention from the thing that is firing you up 
to something that allows your heart to open or your feeling of body sense to ground, then, you know, the opposite is is that the, the, the single most important thing to help anger reduce is wise attention. And that's exactly a perfect example. Yeah. yeah. It sounds so easy, right? When we're saying that. <laughs> millimeters and milliseconds and open up. Just get a little bit more leverage in there. Yeah. And a little more choice about what we do. Mm-hmm. When and when we don't curse, that's a choice. <laughs> the punks love it when I curse. Yeah. And Steve takes personal pride. He thinks he taught me how. <laughs> Have arisen 
as he's explored his ideas. Well, I think it has to do with like my own process, you know. So I've been a part of the Theravon tradition for 35 years now, and as I open up to these um, new ideas and new maps, then I'm curious about what happens in terms of the way that I define myself and the way that others define me, and also what happens in the in the world right now in terms of what's needed, you know, where. How do we, what is needed right now in the world? Now, I know that I don't have to do what's needed for everybody. I know that. So that doesn't confuse me. But it's like, what is it that I am called to do? You know? How do I need to show up in all of this? And, you know, my my basic sense is, is that the reason why things were so difficult in the monastery was because the nuns were really moving towards an integral way. And we were in a, a traditional context that couldn't tolerate it. And that was part of the reason why things were as difficult as they were. And in one of his bigger books, which is less intelligible than this one, he describes that. He talks about how at every stage of development of consciousness, there's a, there's a, a battle. And for me, that was really helpful to see that there's a map that actually includes the battle that we've just been through. This is nothing has gone wrong. This is just what happens when there's evolution of consciousness and people are resisting growth because they're used to the old way and defining themselves that way. So I found that helpful. But the questions, you know, and we've talked about this before. You've heard me talk about this before in terms of, you know, what's unfolding and what's needed and what does it look like and how do we move and how do I, you know, what what is useful now, you know? in terms of, you know, how how much do we hold on to the form and how much do we allow the form to shift and change and accommodate our contemporary circumstances, right? So, like, for example, you know, in a monastery in England, it would just, there's no way I would help you out of the chair. I wouldn't do it because it wouldn't be considered suitable. But in this situation, it would be considered ridiculous if I didn't. You know? So for me, it's context. You know? And to know my own intention and to know, you know, you and to know, you know, whether there's any... Because the reason why those things are held so carefully is because anytime there's physical contact, particularly with people who... Well, I mean, it's a very strong heterosexual bias, which actually is not accurate in terms of people's sexual orientation, but when people get activated that way, talking about strong, you know, it's very strong. And so, you know, that whole thing around physical contact was to protect that happening from either side, you know, so they're just not not going there. But it's, it's not an issue in this context, you know, so for me, I trust not a problem. And for me, it feels, you know, I feel happy about unraveling. I mean, it hasn't been always pleasant, but I feel actually it's useful, you know, to unravel and see where my identity got locked in around certain components of the form and whether that serves or not. That's one of the things that I love about the Quaker model. 
you know, it's just that there's... I mean, I actually don't know it that well, but my sense is, is that there's a lot more flow within the model itself. And so, you know, people can move through changes and that be held within the community. And what I'm finding is, is that's also true in this context as well. It's just that what I learned in England was a very narrow context. And when I have more contact with other people, they realize, well, actually, the context is actually quite wide. And there's a lot of different ways that people can be included in it. It's not, it's not very narrow. You know. And that, I love that. You know. I really love that. Those are good questions for all of us to ask ourselves questions that you're asking yourself. Yes. Well, you know, I, I don't, I can't say what's useful for other people, you know. But you're asking what's useful for me. Yeah. So that's kind of good for all of us. Yeah. Where, where do I fit? What, what? Yeah. Where's my place here? What do I, yeah. How can I be of service? Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for those questions. But like, you know, for example, the eating thing, you know, so in England, for, I mean, even even sometimes when we were extremely sick, we would never, ever eat any kind of food in the evening time. I mean, never. We would eat these kind of weird potions that taste dreadful, but we would not eat anything that was nourishing or nutritious. So there was like this absolutely fixed idea about what was okay and not okay in terms of that. And then when I got so sick and I lost all that weight, I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it that way. And then I began to think, well, actually I'm not entirely convinced this is actually a good thing. <laughs> you know, to cut across one's life force in that kind of a way for such a long period of time because there's a definition about to belong to this group, you have to do it like that. You know? And then I started thinking about, well, the reason why the monks and nuns went on alms round was because they were wanderers. And the food that they received was the food that was offered. And they went on alms round once because it takes a lot to go on alms round and because they didn't want to burden the community. And they didn't store food, because the food would rot if they kept it for longer than an hour, because nobody had any refrigeration. So here we are. Everyone has a refrigerator. The food doesn't rot. There's no disturbance to anybody if I eat something that's nutritious. I'm not making more an imposition to somebody it's like that came out of a context, you know, and was absolutely right in that context. But in this context, it's a different context, you know. So that's the thing about looking at it from the different perspectives of where you are on the map, you know, in terms of what has informed this to be this way. How did it get this way? And what did it feel like, you know? But that was huge. I mean, my goodness. For me to eat something in the evening time was a big thing. That was a really big thing. 
said was critical for me to get well. You know, it's absolutely necessary. So, yeah, I have a lot of questions. And happy with the questioning process, you know, and feeling about what does it feel right to be living this in a way that actually is about waking up rather than fitting into a box. the other story that I read. So there's this woman who, um, whenever she would bake a ham, she would cut off both ends of it. And she just did it because that's what her mom did. Because somebody asked her why she always cut off both ends of the ham. So she asked her mom, you know, why do you always cut off both ends? And she said, because the ham wouldn't fit in the pot that I had unless I cut off both ends. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, she just never really thought about it. <laughs> that's what you do. You cut off the ends of the ham. And the other side of that is, is is that the reason why these traditions have survived for 2,500 years is because there's a lot of forces that actually keep them in the same status quo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the conservative components that actually keep the rules the same or keep people doing it the same has actually meant that it's held together throughout cultures coming together and falling apart and shifts and changes and all the rest of that. And so one has to somehow hold both sides, you know, the emergence and the traditional components and, you know, keep the conversation open. But the thing about monasteries, and one of the things that I really am clear about now, is is that monasteries, people like, or people are interested to go to the monasteries because oftentimes they feel an interest to the interior sphere. They want to meditate. Yeah. And what I see is, is, is that we have got to cultivate the relational sphere the we space. We have to. And so, it's not to say that everybody needs to do it my way, but I'm not interested in doing it where the we space is somehow forgotten or not important or not included or not um, cultivated. Is that why you bring inside dialogue? Because for me, it's really important to bridge what happens in meditation, and to bring those qualities into our relationships. I think that Quaker community, there's a lot more balance with that to begin with, you know, in terms of yearly meetings and group stuff and social engagement. And, and, you know, I don't think you have ever had a kind of overemphasis on the contemplative side of of, of, of experience. And say, um, I'm not quite sure how to respond. I mean, with, with Quakers, I'm definitely in with our, whenever we have our grand people from all different states coming in. For for example, in around yearly meeting, the the queries do, they, they change with time. And they, like for instance, I think last year was about um, the, the main theme was 
about ego, being eco-friendly and really relating to the environment and relationships between people and how you can listen to people and really learn to understand them. And so, so we did them in, we, we tried, it's called, I'm going to say it's called focusing, but, um, and there's something about, there's a specific type of listening that I can't seem to think of right now, like cooperative listening, I think, and it's when, it can be in a group of, uh, as little as two people, or a group as big as 50, I think, and just, it's one way that Quakerism has evolved, almost. And we, we still have kept a lot of our, our old, the, the whole sitting in silence and, but you, you can always spin off to your own, your own way of meditating with that. I mean, I, I like to be outside, normally on grass, in the warm sunshine, but that's just how I meditate best. But, I mean, it's definitely a fluctuating pose between the new and the old, mm-hmm. not trying to throw one one away and emphasize another. And my sense with the nuns is, is that the nuns, we were not trying to throw it away either, but we were just moving into a way where we were including more of this stuff. You know, we'd learn more about communication, about listening, and about holding open a space that could include a wider range of views and find a way forward that included and 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 held open the space that was the best for the most present. And um, we moved out of kind of rigid understanding of things into something that was more um, inclusive and got, got fairly skilled at the we space, you know. And our brothers didn't. I mean, it was really quite noticeable, the difference between our skill level in those areas and, and with the brothers, the monks. They didn't have that capacity or skill or interest or whatever. They didn't. You know, they had other skills, but those were not ones that they had, very, had developed as a community to the same degree. So, uh, yeah, I think there's nuns all over the place that are doing this, where they're interested in uh, holding the, the, you know, the some of the components of what we've come from and yet moving into what makes sense to us now. Well, the Catholic nuns <coughs> in this country, the American Catholic nuns are going through a huge similar thing, it sounds like. Right. Yeah. yeah. In a similar type of uh, a system that's Pretty much male dom- been male dominated for forever. Thousands of years. Yeah. Were they all different cultures there? The the monks and the nuns at Amaravati? Mostly we were, well, we were from different countries. Okay. So, so there was, like at Shedhurst, there were 17 different nationalities or 20 different nationalities. From all over the world, the nuns, pretty much. Yeah, but there were not a lot of Asian nuns. So mostly Westerners, but right, a Western including Australia. Australia, New Zealand, and the monks too. Same, would you say similar? Similar, but there were a few more Asian monks. Oh, there was well, Bodhi Paula was Bodhi Paula was um, 
Vietnamese, Cambodian. Um, so she was, but she came here to the United States and, you know, as a single mom, raised kids, got a university master's degree. I mean, she's a formidable woman. Mostly Westerner. But some of the monks, you know, like they missed the 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 women's rights movement. They were in the monastery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just missed it. <laughs> or they might not have been in the monastery. <laughs> <laughs> but so Ajahn Sumedha was the abbot for many years, right? And then just recently Ajahn Amaru, were you still there when that changeover? Okay. What a job that he took on then, huh? After such a big upheaval going. Yeah, that is a big job. To try to how how to find peace then. Yeah. And I've heard various different reports, you know, some positive, some. It's the same old business in a friendlier box. that would make sense to me because, you know, Ajahnamuro, in order for it to be a different business, he'd have to do something radical. And in order for him to do something radical, he'd need to have the interest of everybody behind him. He doesn't. Well, lovely. Lovely, lovely. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.